What's going on, Restoration Covenant? My name is Michael Sorensen. I'm bringing you this video today from my house in Burnsville, Minnesota. I uh, just had some scripture I want to share with you guys. First one is from Exodus 24, verses 9 through 18. Then Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel climbed up the mountain. There they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet, there seemed to be a surface of brilliant blue lapis lazuli as clear as the sky itself. And though these nobles of Israel gazed upon God, he did not destroy them. In fact, they ate a covenant meal, eating and drinking in his presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain, stay there and I will give you the tablets of stone on which I have inscribed the instructions and commands so you can teach the people. So Moses and his assistant Joshua set out and Moses climbed up the mountain of God. Moses told the elders, stay here and wait for us until we come back. Aaron and her are here with you. If anyone has a dispute while I am gone, consult with them. Then Moses climbed up the mountain and the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled down on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from inside the cloud. To the Israelites at the foot of the mountain, the glory of God appeared at the summit like a consuming fire. Then Moses disappeared into the cloud as he climbed higher up the mountain he remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Exodus 32 verses 1 through 6. When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Come on, they said, make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. So Aaron said, take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. All the people took the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. Then Aaron took the gold, melted it down and molded it into the shape of a calf. When the people saw it, they exclaimed, "Oh Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Aaron saw how excited the people were. So he built an altar in front of the calf. Then he announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. The people got up early the next morning to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. After this, they celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry. How's that for a cliffhanger? Those uh, scriptures look like they're far apart, but they are actually sequentially right next to each other. So let's open with a word of prayer. Good morning if you're tuning in online. Father God, we thank you that technology is working. <laughs> and we thank you that even despite technology or regardless of technology, you are present with us. In fact, you are more present with us than you are present with the people that we are reading about today. So we pray that we would be engaged with your word and with your spirit, that you would speak to us even as we read your word, as we talk about your word, and as we listen for your spirit. 
God, we don't just want to read your word. We want your word to read us. So speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I was preparing for this message today, I, um, God brought to mind a story from a few years ago. This friend of mine named Jason used to go here before they moved to Texas, and Jason was telling me about his faith journey one day, and he said a, a huge part of his faith journey was actually a moment with a coworker. He worked in an office downtown. He had a coworker, um, and she, uh, based, because of her family uh, background, and in addition to her family background, uh, her, uh, some lifestyle choices that she was making, she was actually in kidney failure. In fact, if she didn't get a kidney, she would die. And uh, Amy's family, or that's the woman's name, Amy was tested, and none of her family either matched, or if they did, uh, they were not healthy enough to be donors. And when Jason heard this, he's like, I've got to get tested. Jason didn't even have a relationship with Jesus at this point. He just knew this was something that he needed to do. And so Jason got tested. Turns out he was a match, and he gave her one of his kidneys. He gave her life that she could continue to live. And in the weeks and months that followed, she was incredibly grateful. She would tell people the story. She made lifestyle changes. She would talk to him at the office. And he just was excited to be a part of something bigger than himself. Again, this was part of what brought him to Jesus until a little more time passed. And she came around his desk less. And according to social media, she was making some choices that were not doing great things for his kidney, which was now hers. And as I talked to him, it had been a few years since then, and he said, I just can't understand how someone can get a second chance at life and and ignore it. You know, If a second chance is called redemption, then the question is, is why is it so easy for people to ignore the redemption that they are freely given? That's what was going on in Jason's story, and I think that's what's going on in this story that we come to in Exodus. We are reading through Immerse. This is the Immerse beginnings. It's the first five books of the Old Testament, which are strange, often ancient stories, and we might wonder why they have relevance for us, but as we'll see, they still speak to the human condition. So last week, Daniel taught beautifully on how this supreme God who calls himself Lord or Yahweh or I will be who I will be, how he spoke to Moses and he rescued the people of Abraham. He fulfilled his promises to bring them out of the most powerful nation at that time. And as Daniel mentioned, like when the Israelites experience this, they respond with song. It's the first song ever recorded in the Bible in Exodus 14 and 15. And there, this God, who has revealed himself as Yahweh, has now become their God. Ten times in the song, they use God's specific name of Yahweh. They proclaim his power, his justice, and his royal rule. It's this beautiful, like, kind of climax moment 
And when people talk about the Exodus or the book of Exodus, what they're really talking about is this specific moment or moments in the story. It's when the people are enslaved in Egypt and God rescues them out with these plagues and these miracles and they come out and they start entering the promised land. It's, it's beautiful. God has been true to his name. He's delivered the people. And, and they're not just a people. These are Abraham's grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren. This family of 70 has become this nation of millions and they're part of a mission from God to reverse the curse on humanity and be a blessing in the world. It's, if this was a superhero movie, this would be like a climax moment where they've become, overcome this incredible opposition. They're on this journey to meet with God, to live in the promised land. And so, as you saw in the video, there was a little map detailing how they left Egypt and they went down to Mount Sinai. Now, really, the promised land is over in the upper right-hand corner where that little body of water is. And so there's actually two roads that go near the sea or one just down from the sea. Uh, And they could have gone that way. Would have taken probably three weeks, maybe 40 days, and they would have been in the promised land. But God wanted them to go to this place in the wilderness because it wasn't about getting out of Egypt. It was about Israel getting Egypt out of them because they'd been slaves for 400 years. So where we're at in the story is there's, they've been rescued. There's a sense of hope, expectation, very much like Jason's coworker, of a new lease on life. And for Jason's coworker, it took several years. For the people of God, it took several days. Three to be exact. And then we see in Exodus 15, Uh, that as they leave, there's not thankfulness or gratitude or joy. There's instead grumbling and complaining because they're out in the desert. They don't have any water. They don't have any food. Their pet's heads are falling off. Sorry, just seeing if you were paying attention. (laughs) No, just everything is different. And they want to actually go back to slavery. They say in Exodus 15, they complain and turn against Moses. Why have you, what are we going to drink? And then, because the water that was in this place called Marah was bitter, and they didn't want to drink it. Because sometimes when you're in a place of oppression and you're freed, the first thing you drink is bitterness. And instead of complaining, what Moses did is he cries out to the Lord. The Lord shows him a piece of wood, he throws it in the water, and the water's made sweet. I think there's something there for us. When we come to a place that's bitter, rather than complaining, we can call out to God. Because he wants to turn the bitterness into sweetness, but sometimes we have to pass through. And so they complain, and it's there at Marah that God sets before them this decree, this standard to test their faithfulness. James tells us that we're not supposed to test God or say that God is testing us, but apparently God can test us. And so he does. He says, if you are careful, if you will listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, obeying his commands and keeping his decrees, then I will not make you suffer any of the diseases I sent on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. 
And God does bring healing in that moment. In Marah, they leave, they go to this place called Elim. Elim is this oasis. There's food, there's water. They stay there for a few weeks. They bring healing, but there's this moment where at this point in the story, God's people have not had to do anything, very little. God has done everything. But if they're going to be in partnership, then the Israelites need to bring something, God needs to bring something, and so he sets before him this decree of faithfulness. So there's this moment of peace, ah, healing. Then they leave Elim, they journey down to the wilderness of Sin, not sin. It's not like our, our word for rebellion, it's the word for like Sinai, so this wilderness of Sin. And at that point, they've been now out of Egypt for a month, and it says in Exodus 16, there too, the whole community of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. If only... If only God had killed us back in Egypt, there we sat around pots of meat. I don't know how many of you like to eat meat from pots. I mean, sometimes a crock pot meat, just it falls off. It's so good. But, but anyway, we sat around pots of meat and we ate all the bread we wanted. And now you brought us out into the wilderness to starve us to death. Have you ever felt like a dramatic teenager? I mean... No offense, but like they are complaining again. God gives them bread. Actually, he gives them manna. They don't know what it is because manna is called, what is it? It makes flakes. It's like frosted flakes. You ground it into powder. You make bread. It's beautiful. And then he brings them quail at night so they have tasty meat. But again, they complain. Exodus 17, at the Lord's command, the community leaves the wilderness of sin or sign, goes down to this place called Rephidim. And there's no water at Rephidim. So once more, they complain against Moses. Give us water to drink. Are you seeing a pattern? You should, you should be seeing a pattern. The point of this part of the story is for you and I to see a pattern. God graciously provides. They're uncomfortable with their new situation. Rather than call out to God, they complain. They want to go back to the way things were. Have you ever been in an uncomfortable situation that's new, that maybe even you know that God wants you to be in, and instead you want to go back to what was? Yes. This is called the test of uncertainty. And as much as I want to go, boo, Israelites, you're totally being whiny, you're being stubborn. Again, the point of the Bible is not for us to read it, but for it to read us. We have to ask, when in our lives do we complain when it gets hard, when it is the right way forward, but it suddenly is not what we expected? Do we want to quit? Do we want to complain instead of calling out to God? You know, I'm not super excited about snow in October, so when I, especially this heavy, wet snow, so it's like, okay, kids, come on, let's go shovel. Oh. And if shoveling was just the easiest thing, God calls you to a new place. But suddenly in the new place, there's people that aren't excited for you to be around. Oh, I hate this new place. 
the test is uncertainty. The question is, do I trust God's provision? What he provides for me, like we were reading, or like Matthew talked about earlier in the service, that that whatever God provided, it was enough for them. Some gathered little, some gathered much. I guess it was done. Will I live in rhythm with God and trust that what he gives me will be enough? That's the test. It's to call out to God rather than complain to God. That's the first test, the test of uncertainty. We see the next test. It's this test of identity. It's like the people are forgetting who they are and why God saved them. You can see it clearly in Exodus 19. When they finally do get down to Mount Sinai, God calls to them from this mountain. This mountain's covered in a cloud, but it's also covered in an all-consuming fire. There is thunder. There's lightning. There's trumpet blasts. There's an earthquake. It sounds very scary. It's all like reflective of words of God's presence being there. But he says to Moses to tell the people, Exodus 19, verse 4 through 6, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And now if you obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples of the earth. For the whole earth belongs to me. And you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you're to give the Israelites. And so Moses goes down the mountain, gives the message. He says God wants to meet with them. They need to go to the mountains. So they go meet at the mountain. It says, again, it's all covered in smoke. They get super afraid. In fact, when God speaks the things that are called the Ten Commandments and then a few more commandments, they go, no, 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 no. We don't want God to speak to us. Moses, you just speak to us because if God speaks to us, we're going to die. So you just do that. There's this fear that overcomes them. But don't miss what it said in Exodus 19. The people were to be a kingdom of priests. Now they became a people with priests. But they weren't actually supposed to be a kingdom with priests. They were supposed to be a kingdom of priests. Every one of them was supposed to be able to hear God's word, hear his voice and respond to him. A priest is someone who represents God to the people and the people to God. And all of the nation was supposed to be that people. And their congregation, if you will, is the whole world. Why? Because God wants all people to see what he's really like. He wants even the enemies of God to see what he is like because he loves the whole world. So this test of identity is do I believe God's purpose? Do I trust God's voice? Do I want to hear what God has to say? You can ask God to remind you who you are and what he has for you because God wants to speak to you. God has plans for you. God loves you. See, God didn't simply rescue them because he wants to set people free. He is a God of liberation, don't get me wrong, but that's not all he is, because if liberation is all he is, then we can reform God's central attribute into freedom. 
And it's so easy for us, especially in America, to do that. Like, God wants me to be free. Yes, but God's central attribute is love. God didn't free them so that they could be free. God freed them so they could have relationship with him. Remember, at the very beginning of the story, what did the people lose? What did Adam and Eve lose in the garden? It was God's presence. It was relationship with God. And so God is reestablishing relationship with his people. There's going to have to be no more going up on the mountain and coming back down the mountain and going up on the mountain so we can see God's presence. God is actually going to leave the mountain and move into their neighborhood. He says, I want to dwell with them. In fact, in Exodus 25, it says, they will make for me a sanctuary and I will dwell with them. He goes into explicit, beautiful, but let's be honest, boring details about the temple about where the stones go in the ephod, about how the, the cloth is to be sewn, about where the specific furnishings are supposed to be set. Again, it's all beautiful, but it can be kind of boring. But at the top of the Ark of the Covenant, it says in Exodus 29, there, God is saying this, I will meet with you and speak with you. I will meet the people of Israel there in the place made holy by my glorious presence. Yes, I will consecrate the temple and the altar and the priests, and then I will live among the people of Israel, and I will be their God. So they will know that I'm the Lord and that I'm the one who brought them out of Egypt so that I could live among them. I am the Lord, their God. Three times he says, I am the Lord. Again, he freed them to be in relationship with them. See, this third test, the first one's uncertainty and the second one is identity. The third one could be called proximity. Do I want to be close to God? Especially a God I can't see or can't touch. A God who looks like fire from the base of the mountain, but looks like a cloud when we're in the mountain, and then there's still thunder and lightning. He's mysterious and uncontrollable. Do I want to be in relationship with that God? Is that power good? Or is that power evil? And so, as Mike read in this in the reading for today, there's this beautiful moment where the people hear these words from God and they say, yes, 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 we will do everything the Lord said. We will be in relationship with him. And so Moses and Aaron and lead the people into this uh, ceremony. They have to take blood because blood is life and it symbolizes life, and they have to flick it on the altar, and then he kind of flicks it on the people, which sounds really gross, but again, it's supposed to be this beautiful ceremony. He brings the people up on the mountain. They see God. They see God, and how they describe God is by saying what's under his feet. Think about how awesome and mysterious and powerful God is And they see him and they don't die. And all they can do is describe this brilliant blue stone that's under his feet. And then they eat and drink a meal. It's all marriage ceremony language. That's what it's designed to say. 
if you are a New Testament reader, you'll, you'll see in Ephesians, Paul calls the church the bride of Christ. He gets the bride of Christ language from this part of the story. And so God is committing to the people, the people are committing to God, and we don't want to miss the irony. That's why I asked Mike to read those two passages back to back. God wants to dwell with these people. He wants to be with them. And as he is giving meticulous plans about how to make a place so that he could dwell with these people, these people who are sinful, who do crazy things, who doubt God, who complain all the time, how he is making those plans. Yeah, they take 40 days and 40 nights. How he's doing that the people are begging Moses' brother Aaron to make themselves some kind of representation of this God that they can worship, that they can see, and that they can control. It's Exodus 32. It's the golden calf incident. And it's, it's like the tablets of the covenant have been freshly chiseled out with the promises on them, and they've already broken the promises. Or if we're going with this marriage ceremony language, if, if God, Yahweh, and Israel just got married, Israel is committing adultery on the wedding night. I mean, that's what's happening here. And before we start calling these people idiots, but it seems like the appropriate word, again, we don't just read the Bible, the Bible reads us. We have to say, but when do I exchange relationship with the almighty, invisible creator God for visible, controllable, created objects? When do I stop worshiping the uncreated one and start worshiping things that I create and that I control? Maybe you've been anxious, depressed, or fatigued during this pandemic, because who hasn't? And, and you might even feel like God is saying, come spend time with me. Retreat with me. But you go, mm, yeah, but it's just way more fun to scroll through TikTok videos. Or like, I'll just binge watch Netflix. Just one more episode. Or, you know, one, ice cream, one bowl of ice cream is good, but seven, oh. Okay, none of these things are wrong in and of themselves, but what we're doing, what we're often doing, you can, you can argue with me, but what we're often doing is we're saying that thing will give me the rest or the energy or the peace I need. Not God. Or if we do pray, it's really hard to stop and pray and listen for God. So instead, we come to God like the magic eight ball. Remember the magic eight ball? Like, should I stay in my work because it's really hard during coronavirus? Ask me tomorrow. <laughs> Doesn't look promising. It, God is not our vending machine that we go to him and then we get something. He wants relationship with us. We wouldn't like that if one of our friends did that to us. But that is a way that we exchange relationship with the uncreated one for idols. What about when we put uh, the letter of God's word or God's law above the spirit of God's law? Jesus did this when he was criticizing the religious leaders in the story of the Good Samaritan. 
He's like two religious guys walk by, they see someone who could be dead and they can't touch a dead body and because they can't touch blood and we'll get to that next week. It's, it's going to be awesome except for the amount of body fluid. But they just walk by because they don't want to be in wrong with God's word. Except God's word also says if you see someone who's hurting or see someone's donkey hurts, you should help them up. You should love your neighbor as yourself. And so we want to make sure that, not we want to make sure, that's just another way we exchange relationship with the uncreated God for created idols. Or probably the one that is hardest right now is when we put politics above our faith. Now, our faith is supposed to inform our politics, but if we think a political party or person or platform will bring us to the place that God wants us to be, or if there's another party or person or platform that's in office that certainly God can't bring us to the place that we want to be, then we might be putting politics above our faith. It was N.T. Wright who said, if politicians are being our demons, then our politics have become our God. It was convicting. So this is a big long story where the writer is foreshadowing the people's faith. They see the God of Israel. They see him bring them out of Egypt with signs and wonders, also known as plagues. And they sing about it. They see God's glory in the cloud and in the fire. They see God drown Pharaoh in the sea. They see him abundantly provide fresh water, tasty meat, and daily bread. And they see God settle on this mountain. They hear him speak to them directly, and then they get scared. Over and over in the story, they're complaining. They're getting scared. They're doubting. They're making idols. What are we supposed to get from this? That God's special people are getting it wrong. Just like the enemies of God all the way up to this point in the story are also getting it wrong. So what's the answer? What are we supposed to do if we feel like we're an enemy of God or we're like one of his special people? We're all far from God. We're all complaining or doubting. We're not trusting in his provision. Well, we have to ask, do we really want God's presence? Do we want to be close to him? Do we want to live into his purpose? Do we believe that he's going to provide? And do we want to catch a glimpse of him? Because see, here's the beautiful thing. God isn't sitting on some faraway mountain. I know there's some religions out there where you are supposed to go on these treks to go up into the mountains to be closer to the divine. Well, the divine came to us. He came to us in the person of Jesus. John the Baptist, or John the disciple said it beautifully in John 1 when he said, the word became human and made his home among us and he is full of unfailing love and faithfulness. Those are the words that God spoke to Moses when he was up on the mountain after the people rebelled and Moses was begging God not to destroy the people. God revealed himself and said, the Lord, the God Yahweh, full of unfailing love and faithfulness. He forgives wickedness 
and rebellion and sin. He lavishes his love to a thousand generations. This God is also the one who came to us in Jesus Christ, full of unfailing love and faithfulness. He says even more clearly in John 1.17, the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness comes through Jesus Christ. In fact, no one has ever seen God, except those people on, on, up on the mountain, but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart and he reveals God to us. See, we get the chance to see God's glory, not just in each other, but through the Holy Spirit, through the power of his miracles still at work today. Jesus came to us not because of what we do or didn't do, but because of who God is. So as we come to the table for communion, it seems like it's appropriate to celebrate this meal today. Let's spend just a moment reflecting on the goodness and compassion of God that we see ultimately in Jesus Christ. See, it's Jesus' Last Supper that recalls the original Passover that Moses said to the people. His echoes in the sacrifices of the lamb, its echoes are in the blood of the covenant that is in that meal, that commitment at Sinai. And this is Jesus' meal. He takes over this meal. And he invites you and me to this meal. So if you have or if you're ready to put your trust into Jesus then, and you want him to lead you in a holy life, you want to be delivered from your sin, you want to walk in love with God and with neighbor, you are invited to this meal. You are welcome at this table. So in a moment, would you come to the table, not because you must, but because you may. You come to admit, not that you're righteous, but that you're actually unrighteous, that you're broken, that you need rescue. Would you come, not because you're strong, but because you're weak? Would you pray with me? God, you are holy. You show your holiness through this story and you'll continue to show your holiness. But God, your holiness is revealed most clearly in that moment with Moses on the mountain when you call out your name, this God of compassion and mercy. The God who is slow to anger, filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. The God who lavishes love on your unfailing love to a thousand generations, the God who forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin, the God who does not excuse the guilty, but the God who sent his one and only son to redeem our lives by giving his life. God, we admit that we rebel against you in our attitude and our actions. We've not loved you with our whole heart, We've not loved our neighbor as ourself. We make our own golden calves to worship. God, we want to worship you. Lord Jesus, would you have mercy on us? Would you forgive our sin? Would you send your healing and your spirit to us? God, we want to repent of that. We want to delight in you. So speak to us, God.